Welcome to the Seminole Wars. In this podcast, we explore how the Seminole Wars came to be, how they were fought, and how they still resonate some two centuries later. I am your host, Patrick Swan, and our show is a production of the Seminole Wars Foundation, found online at www.seminolewars.us. We are recording today from the homestead of the Foundation in Bushnell, Florida. Thank you for listening. Hello, how are you? My name is Gunpowder Warrior, Chief Warrior for the Seminole Nation. Ground you're on, most people know today is Bushnell, Florida. Prior to that, it was called Massacre, Florida, because this is where Dade's men were massacred. According to United States newspapers, our people called it a victory, but then we didn't write the history. We made it. Hello and welcome. That was Gunpowder Warrior. Gunpowder Warrior spoke with me along the Memorial Trail at the Dade Battlefield Park in Bushnell, Florida. We engaged in a short colloquy about the reason for the battle, Seminole perceptions during the battle, and what became of the Seminole after their victory. Visiting groups on military staff rides, for instance, often encounter Gunpowder Warrior as they trek along the hallowed ground that we call the Dade Battlefield Trail. He stands as a stark reminder that there was another side to the battle, a side different from that of the soldiers who fought and perished here. I was aided in our discussion by translator Steve Creamer. Steve has portrayed Seminole at various events and venues around Florida for many decades. When Gunpowder Warrior and I completed our talk, Steve Creamer stayed behind to discuss how he portrays the Seminole fighter, how he has also portrayed a Missouri volunteer militiaman, and what the public can learn from witnessing battle reenactments and engaging with the reenactors, such as Steve, who portray Seminole and Soldier at Florida parks. For now, though, I return to my discussion with Gunpowder Warrior. Gunpowder Warrior, what happened at this battle, and why? The summer of 1835, Major Dade comes up out of Fort Brooke, present-day Tampa, with a column of 108 men on the Wilderness Road. He's on his way to Fort King, present-day Ocala, to reinforce the fort there, to help put down the Seminole, which had rose up fight the United States for their homeland. When they reach that point, they are attacked by Micanopy, Alligator, and Jumper, and Seminoles. They are ambushed. In that ambush, Micanopy rises up and shoots Major Dade out of the saddle, who had just previously stated to the men that no, they couldn't put their long arms on the wagon because it wouldn't be very soldierly. And these men have got them swung underneath their greatcoats because it's a damp, cold, misty morning. Which means when they're attacked, they've got to take off their greatcoat, unswing their arms, charge them before they're ready to fire. By the time that occurs, 50% Dade's column is on the ground, dead or dying. The front guard reacts and they fall back to a point where they start constructing what we call the pig pen. That was their first cover. The initial idea was when we attacked them, and we'd been bawling them ever since they left Fort Brook. They thought they were pretty well safe because they hadn't been attacked at a water crossing, which tactically would have been the best thing for us. But if we don't attack soon, and we were waiting for Osceola to join us, which never happened, we'll lose the advantage of surprise. The battle doesn't take long to become over. At the conclusion of the battle, there are three survivors, one of which is Pachinko, which is the black guide and slave, He's not killed because we did not see him as a combatant, and he tends to fade into history after that. Ransom Clark and one other member, one of the musicians that was with the column, on the way back to Fort Brook. They're both severely wounded. 
The musician gets shot by a lone warrior on horseback. Ransom Clark figures he's next, but Seminole turns and rides away. Dade's command is first learned of in its demise when Ransom Clark makes it all the way back to Fort Brook and lets them know there that Dade's command is wiped out. Later, when another column comes north, they find Dade's men as they were left. The Seminole left them as they were after getting whatever ammunition and arms they could because they had fought bravely. The whole idea of the battle was to make a point. We would not be pushed any further than we already had been. And along with Wiley Thompson being killed by Osceola over at Fort King about the same time as Dade's command is getting wiped out, begins the Second Seminole Indian Wars. White man looks at it as three separate wars. We looked at it as one long continuous war. We're still here, and we're still unconquered. After the battle, where did your people go? We dispersed and went back over to the swamp and disappeared in through it from Bushnell all the way over to Holder in Citrus County. That whole area is called the Cove of the Little Lacoochee. And if you drive 48 from Bushnell over to Inverness, you're driving through the Cove of the Little Lacoochee. That was home to the Seminole. Floral City at the time was a major village of the Seminole. A lot of the blacks that would escape from colonies would come down to Spanish Florida because Philip of Spain had decreed that if a black slave comes to Spanish Florida, he's a freeman. If he becomes a good Catholic, he can live within the city limits of St. Augustine. But in either case, he's free. They became counselors and interpreters. They became family because they intermarried. And they fight with the Seminole looking for the same things, simply to raise their family, be left alone, and live in peace, which is what most people would like to do today, regardless of what culture or background they come from. And this is what we sought during that time in our history. In hindsight, was it the best course of action for the Seminole? I look at it then it was the right decision, looking through their eyes. And if we look at it through the eyes of the Seminole today, I still think it was the right thing to do. The Seminole tribe of Florida is a nation within a nation. When you're on the reservation, you're under their laws, not the laws of the United States. They have their own constitution, their own fire and police departments, their own government, their own chief justices. And when you look where the Seminoles were then, where the Seminole tribe of Florida is today, when you stop and think, Seminole tribe has their own orange juice company, their own casinos, their own cattle herd, they own the Hard Rock Cafe, and their people have opportunity for education. They take care of their elderly. They're very much family-oriented. They appreciate education. So yes, I think they made the right decision, although back then they had no inclination of what they would become today. Thank you, Gunpowder Warrior. May I have your leave? Mado, thank you, and thank you for coming to learn. Steve Creamer, thanks for your translation skills. Was there something in your background that got you interested in becoming a historical reenactor? Always liked history, but really didn't get into it until after I was out of school and working. And I went to an event at the Dade Battlefield and found out, gee, they have reenactments, and the people there are very much like extended family. They're more than willing to answer any question you ask of them, and they will try and give you the most correct answer they know about. Or if they don't know, they'll tell you, I don't know. I went over to see what the reenacting end of it was like, and I've been doing it ever since. Steve, was it your background as Park Creek that got you to play a Seminole? I was at the Dade Battlefield. Brian Cepeda came up. He was one of the curators at the Aitiki Museum down at the Big Cypress. They were looking for reenactors. Brian came up for three years, 
You watched everybody, and then by personal invitation, you were invited to the event. Originally, when I got into it, I had gone down as militia. Then Jeremy DeBerry, who played Seminole and usually does, decided he wanted to be the surveyor. When he came to learn that my heritage was Creek out of North Florida and Southern Alabama, he wanted to go over to that side. So when he came over to the Army side, that was my opportunity to go over to the Seminole side, and I've been there ever since. You are portraying a Seminole, but you're not impersonating a Seminole. There's a big important distinction. Yes. We tell everybody that wants to do this, first, foremost, and always, you must keep in mind that this is not about you, the individual, the reenact. This is about a people that struggle freedom and to stay in the land of their ancestors. And you have to remember, you represent them as a nation. The part you portray, you need to do as accurately and as correctly as possible. And you need to pass that along. It's not about you, it's about them. The people, what they went through, their struggles. How do you prepare to portray a symbol? There are several ways. First, the reenactors that welcome you into the family, they will teach you. And they pass information on that they've learned. Now, the Second Seminole Indian War by uh, John Mahone is basically everybody's Bible, so to speak. He covers it very well. We also learn from tribal members, their oral history what they've been told about their history. You go and look at history books and you learn what you can from them, but take it with a grain of salt. I asked Brown Cepeda when I first went down to Big Cypress, out of all the books in the museum in the gift shop on their history, which was the one to buy. His reply was, none of them. They only scratched the surface. If you really want to learn, come down here, spend a couple of weeks, and maybe you'll learn something. And I understood what he was saying. They will always test you and it will not be direct. They're going to see where your heart is and what your character is before they're going to reveal anything to you. Things you don't read in the history books that happened. So it's getting your mind to accept and understand what they were going through, what they thought, what was going on in the country at that time, and seeing it through their eyes and not trying to make the history come alive through your eyes with your preconceived notions and biases, but to see it as they would have seen it. What does it take to get the right seminal uniform? There's a book that the day Battlefield sells. The one that I used was by David Mott and Rick Obermeyer, who researched by going to the museums and it's a book on Seminole dress and clothing. These are two former scout execs that were interested in this and did the research for it. A lot of times there are people within the Seminole side of the camp that make and sell these items, or you can make them yourselves. Information is freely passed. If you're showing an interest, people are more than willing to try and help you. For instance, when we have somebody come in our camp that's interested in doing this, we always assign them to someone, and they take them under their wing. Now, the group together will get this individual dressed. One may have an extra shirt, and another may have an extra pair of leggings, and that type of thing. The other thing we do is we put them with someone so that when they go out on the battlefield, there was somebody that's been there there before, knows what's going on and how to do it, and they're told, pay attention to what you're being told, because if you're unsafe, if you uh, are not going to 
do what you need to to keep everybody safe, then very frankly, we don't want you there. If you're not going to teach the history correctly and truthfully, we don't need you there. And we'll let you know that. But the majority of people have an interest in it and want to learn. And if you've got that fire in your belly wanting to learn what it's about, there are people that are more than willing to help you any way they can. Seminole are okay with non-Seminole portraying Seminole. Yes, I'm a non-Seminole. Like I said, my heritage is Creek. They want you to do it honestly and correctly. No more than you would want if somebody were portraying your history. You would want it taught correctly and from your perspective, too. Steve, you've been on both sides. What's the difference that you found? Well, militia, which is your citizen soldier, provided his own equipment his own rifle, pretty much everything he needed in the field, he provided for himself. He may get a piece of clothing here or there and rations. Usually they ate better than the army because they knew how to forge the land. They knew more about the land than the army did. For instance, the army had a summer uniform and they had a winter uniform. But as hot as Florida is, I would not want to be in their winter uniform, which is all wool, going across South Florida, say in August you're going to burn up and you're going to itch pretty bad too. Where militia, because I provided their own uniforms, if it were me, I'd have leather and the brush so I'm not worried about the sawgrass, the palmettos, and all the prickly, stickly things that you can attract out there, along with the tagalongs. It would help a lot with the noceums. Uh, my shirt would probably be of a, a cotton. I'd have a scarf. I'd have a fairly wide-brimmed hat. I uh, wear a crushed hat when I do militia, so I can change it into many shapes for whatever I need it for. And I wear a pair of moccasins instead of a pair of brograms like the Army would do. We would use the same tactics that the Seminoles used. The Army didn't fight that way makes a big difference. The Seminoles made use of the land and everything in it and a knowledge of it and what's in it. Today that's called asymmetrical warfare. And when the Joint Task Force College send down officers to study the battlefield, this is exactly what we teach them. And we teach them how the Seminoles use the land and the knowledge of it and everything in it to defeat our enemy, something they had a lack of knowledge thereof. When Dade's command comes up to the point where they're attacked, they're all lining up in what we today would call them the Pomeranic Isle. They're all in a nice straight line, lying on command. They're not taking any cover until they build what we call the pig pen and just logs cut and laid a triangular fashion to have some cover behind. They're fighting as they were ordered to fight. The Army is not used to the swamps. They're not used to the Seminole tactics, which is guerrilla warfare, hit them, hit them hard, and then fade into the background and let the environment take care of them. There are no maps of Florida other than on the perimeter. Until the Army starts requiring each fort that gets established across the land to map their particular area, and they put them all together later for the Corps of Engineers and come up with first map of Florida, even it is not correct because Okeechobee is not on it. Okeechobee the largest water body in the state, but they're not aware of it at the time. And later, when all these are put together, you come up with the first map of Florida with a map of the interior, which they don't have at the time they first begin. Compare the weapons that the Seminole had versus the weapons that either the Army or the militia had. The Army was issued a flintlock, anywhere from 69 to 75 caliber, and you loaded it from the muzzle. All the guns were muzzle loading at the time. Seminole used whatever they could get, whether it be flintlock or percussion, later in the war they're asked for and received caps and cap locks. 
which is a more efficient firing system, but it's still a muzzle-loading rifle. Their records showing they asked for and received it from the U.S. government. The government's idea that if we only give them so many caps, then the gun is useless. But they forgot that the Seminole traded the Spanish. The U.S. were not the only means of trading, and they made use of whatever they had to the best of their advantage. You may not use a firearm at all. That knowledge of the land and how to use it, knowing where and where not to cross the rivers, that type of thing can be very advantageous, both strategically and tactically. In reading about battles, it seems like Seminole, who got the first shot fired, were deadly accurate, but on subsequent rounds, less so. What has been your experience? When you fire the first volley, that's going to be the most effective volley. I've read accounts, and I've heard of accounts where after the first volley, they may not use the right amount of powder, so that when they shot, the ball might hit the individual being aimed at, but there wasn't enough powder in it to make it penetrate. Remember, using the guerrilla tactic, you want to hit, hit hard, and fade away. There were some prolonged battles, but even then, ultimately, they end up fading back into the environment, letting the environment handle it from there. There are accounts of both of that occurring. There are accounts of muskets that the Army used being reloaded faster than the rifles. What have you seen? We did it at Dade one time. The Army had a contest. It was to see what the fastest time 10 shots could be fired in. And it was fairly quick. But remember, he's not letting his gun cool. He got the heat of battle. It's a whole different set of circumstances you're working under. You're trying to fire the, the piece as fast as you can. Well, that's real easy when nobody's shooting back at you and you don't have to worry about that. He got 10 shots off fairly quickly. Very surprising. I, I forget the time, but it was astonishing. But there's no one shooting back at you either. There's no adrenaline flowing as far as fear. There's adrenaline for what you're trying to do, of course. And all of that makes a difference. The Seminoles would use a rifle whenever they could because the rifle was more accurate, shot at a longer distance than the musket did. It was a little slower to load, and there was no bayonet luck. The Army had a rifle that was faster to load because it's a smoothbore. They also had a bayonet luck. But if you've been in the brush in Florida or the swamp, a bayonet's not going to do you a whole lot of good. Whereas if you've got a rifle, you want to shoot him from a distance, which allows you to get away quicker. And depending on the situation, now if you're trying to, to fight in an open field and doing a bayonet charge, then if you've got a rifle, you're at a disadvantage. The weapon that you have can be employed to the tactics that you need. The Seminole would always try to get the best weaponry that was available. Now I have seen in working with them, even today, they use the best technology they can get. However, they always have a backup plan. So when technology fails, then they have something to fall back on. When Swamp Man was being done down at the Big Cypress, tribal chairman James Billy was asked a question by one of the people there. Why are you doing this? His reply was, our people, because they still knew the old ways, had something to fall back on, and they survived, even down in the glades, which the white man never learned to do because he always fought nature. He said, that could happen again today. He said, but we would have a way for people to survive and to live. Steve, there are intangibles as well. They're fighting for their homes. How are you able to portray that? We worked on a piece for the Tampa Bay History Center. Looking out over an estuary is a frigate. Aboard the frigate are members of Kawakachi's band. They've been sent to contact him to ask him to come in. If he comes in and surrenders, he's going to be shipped to Oklahoma. If he doesn't come in and surrender, they're going to hunt everybody down. At the end of all of this, you get a feel for how the Seminole felt about the land. You're flying over Florida as an eagle would fly. 
he's reminiscing about being a young boy when the first war starts growing into manhood and into adulthood as the other two wars develop and he partakes in them. But he talks about a love of the land that he was raised in, the land of his ancestors, the feeling for the land, how the land is provided for them and they have lived with it. This is something not taught in a book. This is something not learned from a book. You have to remember these people are living off the land. They're making use of the, what the land provides for food, for medicine, for comfort for living in every aspect of life. So they're very, very tied to the land. They're not like, say, the United States that's uh, trading internationally with Europe and other countries. They're dependent on trade, but not in the same sense. There's no industry as such as we would know it, like you have up in the Northeast, because the Southeast is most farm. So there's a big difference in the lifestyle. And when you live close to the land, you become attached to it. The land gives you everything you need from birth to the grave. What is the mindset for a militiamen or a soldier fighting the Seminole. Most of the army at the time, you had professional soldiers, but you had an awful lot of immigrants came to the new world for a better life. And the army provided them that opportunity. They paid them, they fed them, they clothed them. A lot of them didn't speak English, a lot of German, a lot of French, Spanish, whatever their homeland was. Militia was that uh, individual that wanted to come out and provide for his family and be independent of government as much as he could and make his own way. That's what the country was all about when the people came over here in the first place. Being independent, carving out a living for themselves in the wilderness. So the militia were very tied to that. The army, you're a member of a force that the government's providing for. Different lifestyle on all three aspects of that. What was your perspective, Steve, as a Missouri volunteer at the Battle of Okeechobee? Originally, I was a captain in the Missouri Rangers. Perspective there with Missouri Ranger is you're coming here to help the army put down these Seminoles. They actually got paid a bounty at one point. Your mindset's totally different from that of the Seminole and what he's fighting for. So you've got to get yourself familiar with what on in the country, how those people living then saw life, what life was to them under the circumstances they were under. Not trying to compare them with the way we live today because it was totally different. Back then, uh, when you're a militia, you don't hunt if you don't grow a crop. If you don't fish, if you don't know the land, you're not going to survive in it. But if you know what you're doing and you know plants you can use for medicine, what animals you can use for to make clothing out of, what's better to make fur out of to trade, what wood is better for building your cabin, what crops will succeed and what won't, that's entirely different from, say, the Army, who's issued a ration every day, so much pork, so many beans, that type of thing, where you can go draw a uniform or a blanket or powder or shot or whatever, where they have to provide for themselves through trade. And the Seminoles kind of in the same boat because they're living off the land too. But they learned the land and how to live closely with it. You've got to get yourself in a different mindset to understand their living conditions as opposed to what you're living under today and the conveniences that we all enjoy today. Battle of Okeechobee, is it your view that the Army didn't use the Missouri Volunteers to their greatest talent as Rangers? Well, I think the Army used them to their advantage as best they could, and I think the Rangers understood that because they're fighting for the Army. You've got to remember, the Army back then might have 10,000 people for the entire country at the time. It's not like today, you know, where you've got people all over the world at different bases and different ports of call and on the seas. Totally different game plan for the country than it was back then. It makes a big difference from the way we perceive things as we think they were back then is 
uh, what they actually were as compared to today. If you lost electricity, if you lost the water supply on your property, and you had to go back to living that way, how many people today still can? How many of them know how to go hunt, fish, and process that they catch or that they, they've hunted? and preserve it. And how do they make use of everything the animal provides or the land provides? Most of them don't have that knowledge anymore. Steve, which sites do you do reenacting as a Seminole? I start with Fort King. They do a, a reenactment of Osceola's killing of Riley Thompson over there, and they make a point to let you know that this is not an actual battle. The killing of Riley Thompson and the traitor and his son, the young man, did take place. But they do a skirmish to give the people an idea of what a battle might have looked like and they make the distinction between the two. Do it at date. Then I do Fort Christmas, which is a, a history program with Jimmy Sawgrass. And then there's Fort Cooper, Fort Foster, and down with the Seminole Tribe of Florida when they have the shootout event that they do. I'm the battle and safety coordinator for that. There's Laxahatchee and Alafire River Rendezvous. That's over Jupiter, which is anything prior to 1840. You choose a, a lifestyle and a personification that you want to portray and that's how you live and, uh, and do for the 10 days you're there. Come to a reenactment and just go talk to the different camps because most of the people in them have got a passion for history. Most of them are tied to it ancestrally. For a lot of them, it's their family history. And you'll learn things there that you won't learn in a book or in a museum somewhere. For instance, Fort Christmas, it was a supply point that General Jessup had built on the St. John's River. It has two blockhouses. One blockhouse is all about the Seminole Indian Wars. The other blockhouse is all about the cracker people of Florida, the cow people. And they have historical homes that were in and around that county that are there. A lot of places to go. What have your interactions been like with the public as you portray a Seminole warrior? public has been very receptive to what's been taught. They appreciate being able to see it, to learn about it. A lot of them have heard about it, but never seen it. We were at Dade one year where one woman came all the way across the state to see it. The battlefield over there also does World War II days, because that's part of the battlefield's history. During the Second World War, they were developing a very secretive thing called radar there. So it's not something that a lot of people are aware of. That's why I say there's a lot of history in Florida if you go look at it. People forget that Florida flew under five flags, Spanish, English, Confederate, American, and French. Any parting thoughts about reenacting? With what's going on in this country today and people wanting to destroy history and rewrite it, if you don't know where you came from, how do you know which way you're headed? And if you don't learn history, you're bound to repeat it. People need to think about that. It's not what happened 150 years ago. You can't correct that today. But you can learn from it and you can move forward. You need to keep that in mind. Steve Creamer, we're out of time. Thanks for joining us for The Seminole Wars. If you enjoyed this show, please take a moment to like us on Facebook at Seminole Wars Foundation. Leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Your reviews and comments help new listeners discover us and help us keep the show going. Visit our website at www.seminolewars.us for blogs, articles, news, books, events, membership information, and how to subscribe to this podcast. We'll be back soon with a new episode of the Seminole Wars Podcast. The Seminole Wars Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to preservation, education, and publication 
of Seminole Wars history throughout the state of Florida. This podcast is copyrighted. The Seminole Wars Foundation, 2021. All rights reserved. Front bumper music, The Devil's Garden. Roast em, provided by kind permission of Reedy Youngman. Back bumper music, Second Seminole Win, by Jed Merrim and Ricky Pittman, courtesy of Ricky Pittman. All rights reserved.